0: to you the gospel lesson, which is from the good news according to St. Luke, 24th chapter, pretty much the end of his gospel. Jesus has risen from the dead, but the disciples don't know it. He said he would do something on the third day, rise, and they don't know what he means by that, and he's not there. So a couple of them have walked home, disappointed, to Emmaus, and he showed up on the road, and they didn't recognize him. Maybe you're familiar with the story. So he walked with them and then broke bread with them before he opened their eyes, They run back to the disciples who are back in Jerusalem. He says, they say, guess what? We saw Jesus and Jesus appears to them. And then we get to our passage. And I tell you all this because I'm only going to allude to it during the sermon. So give this part your careful attention and try to remember it as we consider it together in the sermon. Let's stand now for the good news. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you While I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifted, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the gospel of our Lord. We've been working through a sermon series on three virtues that we hope and trust that in this time and in this place, If we pay attention and abide in the vine that is Jesus and his life and go deep beneath the surface and trust ourselves to him, that he will bear fruit in us for our own enjoyment and for the enjoyment of one another and for our neighbors, that he will work virtues like welcome, worship, and witness into us, because that's who he is a God of welcome, a God of worth, and a God who witnesses. This morning, we're going to turn to the virtue of witness. Uh, we're going to look at this for three different weeks, a little bit disrupted because of the Marathon Sunday and some other things. Uh, but we've only given two to the other virtues, so witness gets a little extra time here. Maybe you've heard this word witness. What do you think of when you hear the word witness? You might think in English, it's, uh, this other interpretation is just testimony, to testify, someone that can give witness or testimony to something, someone who's seen something. We think about legal cases. You know, this is a key witness. If this witness will provide their testimony, it could really turn the case. We think about maybe just in historical cases, this person was there. They're an eyewitness to what happened. They can tell you firsthand what they saw, what they experienced. And for some of us, it has a religious meaning as well, that you go and you witness to people or you give your testimony to what God has done in your life. And when we talk about that, we usually think about a message in words, Something that you can tell. You can speak to someone. I remember I had an experience, maybe some of you have had the unfortunate experience of something like this, Uh, and it doesn't matter if you were raised in an evangelical home or a mainline Protestant home or a Catholic home or even really other religious homes, I'm sure, as well. All of us uh, have some version of, hey, this is the truth that you now have, and you need to uh, go out there and convince people to believe and accept this truth themselves. And so I found myself in a place called Mesquite, Texas, in a mall, which um, is probably my least favorite place in the world to be nowadays. Uh, But when I was in high school and I had just converted to Christianity, just kind of come to conscious faith as a young adult, one of the first things that they told me to do was, hey, you've met God, you've embraced him, you've, you've asked him to be your king and to be your Savior, and also to enter into your heart. And now it's time to go share that with people. So we went to the Mesquite Mall. Uh, and you kids, uh, you probably don't get this, uh, but you know, the mall was like a big deal for some of us, especially in the suburbs. It was the one place where you could get dropped off and you could be sort of uh, un- unwatched for hours and you'd run around. And there are places called like Wet Seal and, uh, you know, there food courts. And you'd go around and people would just hang out and cause trouble and get up to no good. And so it was a wonderful place to be, but not... <laughs> not on the Saturday that my friend Buck Slay, which is the greatest Texas name, Buck Slay, a friend of mine took me to the mall and he said, well, you've become a Christian. We're going to do something. And I don't remember exactly. It was a convoluted uh, parable, at least it is now in my memory, but it had something to do with, it's like you got a belt and every time you go and you share the good news with somebody and they accept Jesus, you get another notch in your belt. And I guess at the end of the day, you want a lot of notches and maybe you can put new tools in your tool belt and get new things done. It was some kind of uh, incentive to go. Um, I'm not going to really, there's no end to that story other than to tell you that all my friends were there, uh, or people you saw from school, and I didn't do a very good job, and I most of the time tried to hide, and I was embarrassed all the way, and I never said yes to doing it again. Later in my journey as a Christian, I was taught that witness has something to do more with God's salvation, which is more than just words, it's holistic. It's about witnessing in word, what we call evangelism, and indeed. To go out and demonstrate the kingdom. To to show people what it's like. To go out and to live out God's justice and his reconciliation. His service to other people. His repair of the world. His healing work. It's a message. It's not just in word. It's a message in deed. And our job now. You've received the gospel. You've been welcomed into God's presence back in as the prodigal. You've met him in worship by turning from idols to the living God. And so now it's your job to go back out into the world and get to work for God. I don't actually think this is a bad thing. I'm framing it a little bit. It's a little interesting. If you've been to Westminster Abbey, do you know what they have written right on their lectern? It's, you know, Westminster Abbey, right? It says, go out and attempt big things for God. I thought that was the strangest, like, you know, sort of uh, on the street way to put it. But we think about this all the time, or this is what we're taught all the time, is that, you know, if you've got to know God now, it's your turn to go out And to witness to people in word and deed, to go out and to build his kingdom, to go out and get the work done, to roll up your sleeves. And as I've tried to do with every virtue this fall so far, is skip past surface welcome and talk about the deeper virtue of welcome, not just the work of welcome, but the virtue of welcome that it's rooted in God himself and in worship we didn't just think oh it's like what we come and do and we have the call and the cleansing and then we dialogue with God he speaks with us he feeds us and he sends us out and then our ordinary life is supposed to be shaped by that we did all these things but first we talked about God finds you worthy and he is worthy we tried to get deeper and so I want to do the same thing with witness because the fact is if witness is on your shoulders then that weight is indeed the weight of the world. The fate of the world on your shoulders, on your work, on the nature of your faithfulness and courage in witnessing in word and deed. Otherwise, it's all going to hell as fast as possible. This is a lot, to say the least. And I want to suggest that we are not first and foremost called to build the kingdom We're actually, and we're going to come back to this, called to embody the kingdom, but we do this through being a witness, and I want to think a little more deeply about witness this morning. What are we witnessing to, of course? Jesus, the good news about his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, but also what Jesus witnessed about his very first sermon, the topic of all of his sermons in one way or another, often explicitly and then the gospel message throughout the New Testament is: these people were witnesses and sent out to proclaim in word and deed and embodiment, a message, a truth, a fact, as they were witnessing, they were pointing a finger to, again, not doing it themselves, building it themselves, pointing a finger to what Jesus called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what we witness to, the God who is bringing kingdom of God. I'm going to kind of be a little messy as I go through this back and forth a little bit, Uh, a little bit intentionally, a little bit unintentionally, but I want to ask throughout this time, what is the kingdom of God? What is witness and what isn't it? The first thing I want to tell you, good New Yorkers, is the kingdom of God is not a pitch deck. The kingdom of God is not partisan electoral politics. The kingdom of God is not your project or our project that we can recruit people to. It also isn't, on the other hand, as it's sometimes believed to be by Christians and others, an invisible, disembodied, inaccessible heavenly realm where we go to when we die. The kingdom of God, and again, we're going to unpack this as we go, at its base is the reign of God, the rule of God. It is in the New Testament, the message that God has gained his rightful throne as king, that Jesus, as all these religious words you hear are other words for king or conqueror, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the anointed, the Messiah, the king of peace. It has something very much to do with this world. It is earthly, or more to the point, it is heaven, too earthly. It's not associated, when I say it's earthly, it's not associated with any, any temporal or temporary nation state or kingdom. Jesus said it explicitly to the ruler that condemned him to death. My kingdom is not from or of this world, by which he meant the one that you have set up, your rule, your domain, your systems, your economy, your culture, your stuff that you think you're so in charge of, mine's not from you, You don't have to worry about it. It's coming from somewhere deeper and different. And of course, he didn't tell him to his face, but he knew that within a generation, his kingdom would topple the Roman Empire. Well, within a few generations. Within a generation, it would conquer Jerusalem. So in some ways, the kingdom can be against our nation states, our politics, our culture, our economies. The eminent theologian and bishop N.T. Wright puts it this way. The four gospel writers, their story of Jesus as bringing the long history of Israel to an unexpected climax, offered a remarkable parallel to the great Roman narrative in which Augustus and his successors were busily reinforcing in statues, coins, and other symbolic artifacts. In other words, their good news was on a collision course because the Jews too had cherished a prophecy about a coming king whose peaceful rule would extend from one sea to the other, from the river to the ends of the earth. And the four evangelists declare that this king has arrived and that his name is Jesus. I'm going to keep going with this quote, but listen to it. It's worth it. The story told by all four gospels is the story of how God became king. Not by the usual means of military revolution, or I might say, partisan electoral politics and campaigns and division and news feeds, but instead by the inauguration of sovereignty during Jesus' public career, the strange but decisive victory that he had on the cross itself. All four report that Jesus was executed with the words, King of the Jews, over his head. And they all knew that the ancient Jewish dream was that the King of the Jews would be the King of the Jews. Of the whole world. In fact, if Israel's God was the creator, how could you expect anything less? And what the four evangelists were asking their readers to do as witnesses to Jesus and as those trying to convince you of their claims was to imagine this. To ponder this strange, multi layered narrative and to imagine that this, rather than something else, is what it would look like when God became king. To imagine that this. What we see in the Gospels is what it would look like when God became king. This rather than something else. Imagination. This is precisely what the four Gospels are aiming to do to us. See, it's this witness, this message that God's kingdom has achieved and inaugurated, not through us, but through Jesus' life, death, death. Resurrection and ascension, his current rule over all things from God's right hand, his empowerment of his people through his Holy Spirit, as Stephen read to us, which is now the fullness of Christ himself, who is filling all in all. It is a kingdom of shalom and peacemaking and rule and healing. Remember that he, beneath all of our work, is the deep, ever living king, he is the vine. And I want you to hear, as we try to unpack this, the grace of witness. Next week, we're going to talk about witness in word and its call upon us to be evangelists and to share, share the good news in word. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the need to share it in deed and to be witnesses in our works and in our deeds But the first thing you need to hear before you're asked to get to work is that just like all of salvation, witness is done by grace. God himself is doing all of the work. He's doing the work. Whatever you get to do is grace. It's done, it's achieved, it's finished. Maybe you get to participate in playing. We don't earn the kingdom. We don't usher it in. And this is really hard for can-do American New York hustler people, individualists to hear. To hear that he doesn't actually need us. We can't fail him or frustrate the kingdom and stop it. And I need you to hear this because we want to see the world a better place. And I think most people do, even even when they do terrible and evil things, somewhere deep down, there is a motivation that was like, I think this is better. This will be better for me and my people or for the world in some way. We want beauty to be highlighted. We want goodness to flourish. We want there to be truth. We want to change the world. We want to change the physical planet, the way it's abused. We want to change the ignorance and injustice in the world. We want to. We want to help change any inherent selfishness by which humans mar the beauty, truth, and goodness of God and his world. And we turn to all sorts of places, technology, government, education, economic transformation, arts and entertainment, personal transformation, education, all of these things. In the words of Radiohead, we are busy trying to be fitter, happier, more productive, comfortable, not drinking too much, regular exercise at the gym, three days a week, getting on better with your associate employee contemporaries, at ease. I could go on for the whole song, but I won't. If you know yourself at all, you start to realize that I don't have the power to change the world And I think we all need to hear this, but maybe you teenagers and 20-somethings and early 30-somethings need to hear this before it's too late and you wreck yourself and get exhausted. You won't be able to change the world. It's too much of a weight on your shoulders. If witness is up to you and your strength, you will fail. This is the good news, is that God is his own chief witness. God has witnessed through the Old Testament to his own works and given people inspired by the Spirit to write down the works of what he's done through Genesis all the way through the prophets. And then he sent his own son to be the chief witness, the fullness, the final and complete testimony to God and who he is and his character and what he's doing. And then he, on the cross, says it's finished. And then he empowers his people and he says, I'm going to get this work done with or without you. And so I need you to hear this good news this morning. We do have a king. He has taken care of it. If we stop or fail, even the very stones will cry out and witness. So take a deep breath. Imagine that no matter what you read in the news when you leave here, no matter what notifications are going off in your pocket, no matter what you walk across and see this afternoon, that the chief calling, the chief challenge for witness before we can go in word and deed is to actually be witnesses. I mean, before you go in a court and point and talk, you encounter, you witness. You stop and see God at work, not you. You stop and see what is he doing? When I stop trying to change the world and get my plans together and, and get all my personal stuff done and, and fix things, what is he doing? Jesus says things like this about the kingdom. i will fly through these. What's the kingdom of God like? So the challenge is to see it. Okay. How do we do that? What's the kingdom of God like? He says, what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. I can't see that right now. It's a mustard seed buried in the garden. But then, and there's a lot of time. This didn't happen overnight. Probably doesn't happen in one season. But eventually it grew and became a tree. And then the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Again he said, What shall I compare to the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. I can't see that. What mysterious work is it doing in there? Oh, wait. The loaf is rising. I'm not even doing anything. Until it's all leavened. That's how Jesus compares the kingdom. Suddenly we're a little more mysterious now, aren't we? A little less busy. Asking questions like, well, help me see. How do I see? And then we're in good company. People like Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, someone much studied in the scripture. I promise he knew his Old Testament better than you know any of your testaments. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we don't understand. No one can do these things unless they're from God, but what am I seeing? Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Unless all this thing that you've built and come up with in your life and all of your life and all of your, all of your accomplishments and your ego and everything that's there, unless you just start over, baby brain, you'll never even see it. You won't be able to see it. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. That's how you get to see the kingdom. His cousin, John the Baptist, wondering, wondering, I'm hearing reports. I'm in prison. Looks like they're going to put me to death. This isn't going so well. So I send my people over to Jesus and I say, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? Are we going to get this show on the road, Jesus? Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news. preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. His own cousin, like, man, I've been preparing the way for you for a long time. Are you going to show up? Go tell him to look and see, not just what he's thinking about, not just what's on his mind and his timeline, but look and see. Look deeper. See the healing, see the proclamation, see the kingdom. He says it one more time when he sends out 72 disciples to embody the kingdom, to be witnesses. He says, you're my witnesses. I'm going to send you out. They have this like little missionary enterprise in the middle of his ministry. And they come back so excited. They're like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. We witnessed and people like bought it and they came around. They're all excited. And then we healed people and we actually like made things happen. It was so awesome. And he says to his holy father, he turns to the side and he prays and he says, thank you, father, Lord of heaven and earth. Thank you that you've hidden these things. From the wise and the understanding. But you've revealed them to little children. This is your gracious will. Then he turns to his disciples and he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. I tell you so many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. And they didn't see it. To hear what you hear and they didn't hear it. But blessed are your eyes for they see. So this is really my main point with a couple applications this morning. We must first witness God's work before we can be witnesses for him. This means that the first job is to learn to see, to ask him to open our eyes, to be in a place of humility. What am I supposed to do? I don't know. Where are you? I'm not sure. Are you the one? Is this the right kind of work? To pay attention to him more than to our agendas. To ask him to help us see beneath the surface. And this requires being still, watching, learning, studying the scriptures in relationship. I have really three quick applications of how this, a process of how this works. How do you learn to see? Well, by real ongoing relationship. To witness Jesus interacting with you and others to be in real, vital, active relationship with him. On the front of your bulletin, it says Victor Hugo himself wrote, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair, less of a white paper, more of a relationship, less of a pitch deck, more of personal loyalty and connection. And the good news is that when you pay attention to him, you find that you have the presence and love of the king of the universe, And that's the change that we really want and need. That at best, we only have a partial picture, maybe even a belief. At some places right now in the world, his kingdom seems much harder to see perhaps than in other places. Flourishing is happening a little more here in this season than in that one. In all of these times, we still need to believe that we have a king who is taking care of us, who is entirely able and is entirely good, who rules the whole world Indeed has everything, the whole cosmos in his hands, and yet he is near and tender to you, embraces you, speaks to you, washes you when you get dirty in the world, pledges his love to you, defends you from all enemies, teaches you, feeds you, died and was raised for you. You have this power, and you can reappropriate it, you can reconnect with it, I should say with him, By the power of the Spirit over and over again to witness his ongoing salvation in and for you. If you do that, you might find yourself now being humbled in the presence of something greater, and a king who does things we don't always understand, with questions. And I've this has also been like a sub-theme throughout the series: to be people in our time and in our place, with all the talking heads, the lack of real relationships and just the ideas and the enemies. And all the chatter and talking and hatred without any real connection. To be a community of people that asks more questions than gives answers. Of course, we can say like Peter and John did when they were in the New Testament. Like people ask us what we have. We say, I don't have a lot. I don't have gold. I don't have the strategies. I don't have all the power. But I do have one thing. And I share it with you. And that is the knowledge of Jesus and his power. But besides that, we have a lot of questions. The disciples did it. Did you hear? They were walking and they had questions. They're like, I don't know. I was reading the scriptures. Is this what he's up to? It doesn't make sense. I'm not sure. Let's keep talking about it. And then Jesus shows up. They don't know it's him. Jesus, or friend, walking down the road. Haven't you heard about these things? What's going on? We don't understand. Help us to know. They had Jesus walking with them. Then they have him in the room. And it still says, they're flabbergasted when he reveals himself. They're like, what? What? He's like, give me some fish to eat. They're like, really? They have to keep depending on him for answers. It's not like a, here's a test. Now you're the expert. Go out and witness in the world. Get that career going. No, ongoing dependence. And this is a very low-hanging fruit application, but let me give you one. In a time where everybody in our world seems to say that the only thing that really matters is, well, one, whether you're rich, poor, black, white, but especially whether you're right or left. I mean, you can't go anywhere without hearing this, right? What if we were people of questions more than answers? I know the answers. I'm going to get my way. I'll recruit enough people to my side and we'll crush the enemy. Okay? I've been around. I read. I mean, a lot of the American church is totally bought into this as their strategy for the kingdom of God. What if you had questions just as individuals with people? You could even put it like this. Oh, you identify as a conservative. That's cool. Um, You know, the root of that means you want to conserve something. That must mean there's some things in the past or in the history or in your own um, inheritance or your own tradition that you think is really beautiful. And that you want to stand on the shoulders of people that went before. There's something good that happened. that You want to conserve and bring forth for people in the future. What are those things? Tell me about that. Oh, you consider yourself a progressive. Uh, Before I flame you through all my fears of what you might take from me, I have questions. You want things to progress. It means that you've probably noticed that there are some things in our systems, in our world, and in our relationships that can be improved, that need to change, that have left some people out, that have really harmed others. Uh, You want us to progress. What are the things that you want to see be better in the world, and why? And then maybe your little bumper sticker, like drop the mic thing can just be like, I think that we can discuss so many of these strategies. But the only thing worth conserving is love. And the only thing worth progressing in is love. And we can talk about the details, but the reason I know this is because I experience on the regular the love of God, even though I don't deserve it. Even though I don't do a good job of being faithful to what he's done for me in the past and bringing it into the future and giving it to others. Even though I'm not faithful enough to progress as much as I ought and I just stuck and stay in my own ways, he still loves me. Isn't that a different kind of conversation? I think if you will witness God and his work and trust that he's taking care of it and then be free to ask a lot of questions then you will begin to see the kingdom more and more. You will see it happening in ways that you don't understand. You'll see it happening in the ordinary things as well as in the extraordinary things. Trusting that he's not only taking care of the history of nations, this and other ones, to his own end, and for the good of all who love him and for the glory of the coming renewed world, but you will see him in really ordinary things. Do you know what the word in Greek is for witness? I'm going to tell you a logical fallacy. You're not supposed to do this as a preacher, but I'm going to do it and then explain to you I'm doing it and you're still going to like it. Martyria. It's where we get the word martyr. Now, that's what, not what witness originally meant. It meant all the things we've said. It only later came to mean the word martyr it's the word martyria, it just meant witness, but so many people witnessed with their lives in such a way by going to die excruciating, painful, ordinary deaths that seemed to be the kingdom of God being squashed out by the world and all of its hatred and division and othering and agendas that through their death, the kingdom of God somehow came and transformed the ancient world. As they said, the blood of the martyrs, the witnesses, is the seed of the church. And a new world order indeed was born. Ordinary witness turned into extraordinary witness so that people could see even the flames, the lions, angry hordes, the crucifix, their enemies, the sword. Now no longer as just ordinary, terrible things to avoid, but instead the door into more kingdom. What things will we see? if we witness God's ongoing work. If we do what these disciples did, which was to have ordinary meetings with ordinary believers, to break ordinary bread, to pray, to wait for power on high, to ask questions, to seek and to find, to ask and to receive. Friends, to witness God's work as he builds his kingdom, is grace through faith. Only when the power is coming from the deepest source, that is him and not us, will he ask you to join into his work, to grab a work belt and a hammer and to get to work, and then by grace through faith to put new notches on your belt and to have you be a part of his kingdom as it goes forth. May God help us to witness him in this service in this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.